Hello, and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. We're broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Alexis Goldsmith. And I'm Bria Barthel. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Mark Dunley talking with Dr. Sandra Steingraber of the Science and Environmental Health Network about the variety of ways that gas fracking affects health and the environment. Then in our continued Election Watch coverage, Elizabeth E.P. Press introduces us to Karen Splain McLaren, a candidate for Troy City Council's District 3 seat. Later on, I get some very interesting book suggestions from Ian Houck from Troy Public Library. After that, Hugh Johnson joins us a bit earlier than usual for his weekly look at weather and climate, this time talking about the unusually late initial frost in the area and more about the impact of El Nino and other phenomena on weather. Finally, we end with a call for peace in Gaza and Israel from local Jewish anti-racist activist Naomi Jaffe, plus musicians, activists, and sanctuary friends Taina Seeley and Gaetano Vaccaro. But first, a few headlines. With hospital maternity wards closing across New York at a steady pace, Assemblymember John McDonald will introduce state legislation seeking to strengthen the state's review process before obstetric care can be eliminated. Meanwhile, St. Peter's Health Partners on Monday announced that the closure of the Burdett Birth Center will be delayed by up to six months while it studies community concerns about transportation and access. The State Assembly is considering a bill by Assemblymember Kellis of Ithaca that would ban five food additives that some experts believe are linked to cancer and mood disorders in children. In other health-related news, Dr. Elizabeth Whalen, the health commissioner for Albany County for the past eight years, who recently guided the county through the COVID pandemic, has resigned from the position to pursue board certification in lifestyle medicine. And finally, Amtrak has announced that most train service was to resume Monday between Albany and New York City after its weekend closure due to a landslide in Westchester County. And that's it for the headlines. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute your time, talents, or financial support, see the donate button at mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call us at 518 518- Now on to our first story, Mark Dunley explores a recent report about the many effects of fracked gas on health and the environment with Dr. Sandra Steingraber of the Science and Environmental Health Network. With Dr. Sandra Steingraber, who is a senior scientist at the Science and Environmental Health uh, Network. And recently, uh, Dr. Steingraber was involved in uh, releasing uh, a new compilation of uh, studies about the uh, dangers of fracking. New York, of course, technically, uh, you know, banned fracking, I think, in uh, 2015, but as we get a lot of frack gas still coming into the state. So uh, Dr. Steingraber, welcome, and um, maybe just a brief introduction as to what was this report about and, and what were the groups behind it? Yeah, hi, hi, Mark. Pleasure to talk with you today. 
I am um, the senior scientist at the Science and Environmental Health Network, and um, more specifically within that uh, project is a, a program called Concerned Health Professionals of New York, of which I'm a co-founder. And we, the sort of origin story here is that we began um, as a group of scientists and health professionals 10 years ago when our previous governor was trying to decide whether to prohibit or permit fracking and we set to work compiling the risks and harms of fracking in the peer-reviewed scientific literature so that our elected officials in the governor's office could see an independent compilation of the data but also so that people in the southern tier and other places that were going to get fracked first would know exactly what risks and harms they were being asked to um who are being compelled to kind of bear. And we were pleased that our research um, findings aligned completely with the uh, the group of health professionals that the governor himself had put together. So we reached identical conclusions. And on that basis, as most New Yorkers will remember, I think in December 2014, fracking was banned. But now we've continued with that compendium project. It's now its ninth edition. And uh, my message today is that New Yorkers are really not protected yet from the dangers of fracking because the even though we don't frack in New York, the terminus of the fracking pipeline, which starts in the shale fields of Pennsylvania somewhere, it ends up in our homes, right? In our kitchens even, um, where we turn on the gas in our gas stoves. Um, where the whoosh of our furnace kicks on and so on. And so we're looking at the health risk created by the indoor air pollution from combusting fracked gas inside of our homes. And people may remember it was a big fight in uh, the Sheridan Hollow neighborhood because Governor Cuomo had wanted to add on uh, two new fracked gas turbines uh, at the uh, Sheridan Avenue steam plant to power the uh, state uh, capital and a uh, big fight about that and that was stopped people still trying to get 100 percent renewable capital to sh finally shut down this plant that's been polluting the neighborhood for over a century but what are some of the problems that uh, the report identifies you know with the use of natural gas and, and people's homes here in new york state well, I'm glad you um, brought up those other projects because indeed there are health effects and climate effects associated with every stage of the fracking pipeline. And that includes the literal pipelines that crisscross New York and the compressor stations that push the, that gas through the pipelines. And so there are um, very important citizen battles over um, pipelines. And, and now we have this emerging data showing the harm to people inside their own homes. So the data are very clear that um, nitrogen dioxide, which is created when um, natural gas is burned inside your home, reaches levels that are, would be illegal out, if it were in your outdoor air. And nitrogen dioxide is a really interesting um, air pollutant because it's not actually created by the burning of natural gas. It's not a combustion byproduct per se. It's because the heat of a natural gas flame is so high, it burns the air around it, causing nitrogen and oxygen to combine. That uh, chemical turns out to be not very water soluble, which is bad for us because it means that our nasal passages can't help us, can't protect us. And, and it goes deep into our lungs where it turns into nitrogen, um, or it turns into uh, nitric acid which is uh, associated with inflammation, wheezing, and triggers asthma, causes asthma and makes asthma attacks worse. So we know in New York State, we've run the numbers, um, 
that almost one in every five children who have asthma in New York State, it's attributable to the use of gas stove in the kitchens and that kids who live in homes with gas stoves have much higher rates of asthma than other kids. And of course, this is an environmental justice issue um, because in um, lower income housing, houses are smaller and often families need to rely on their gas stoves for supplemental heat. So uh, the heating problem that we have in New York and the and the gas stove problem are not uh, unrelated. So I understand there is some uh, legislation pending in New York that would uh, address this problem. Could you maybe describe the legislation and, you know, is the governor and the legislature likely to move on at this session? Um, yeah, I mean, I feel really hopeful. And I was very happy that when we released the ninth edition of the compendium in a press conference last week that um, several uh, senators and assembly members in Albany stood with us scientists um, to let the uh, New Yorkers know that, in fact, there is legislation that they're, that they're co-sponsoring. Um, and so, for example, um, the New York Heat Act um, would help transition us off of um, fracked gas inside of our homes and, and uh, provide incentives for electrification. And that um, that bill has passed the uh, Senate and needs uh, as assembly members. So um, so the co-sponsors of that bill came forward, and and I, I believe that the science that we offer can inform that political process and um, help it gain some traction. Now, I understand also one of the problems with, with natural gas is, is tied into the leaking of, of, of methane and that methane as a greenhouse uh, gas is actually 82 times more potent, at least short term, the first 20 years than, than uh, carbon. Is leakage of, um, you know, natural gas uh, a, a problem in terms of climate in New York still? Yeah, absolutely. And so methane leaks at every stage of the fracking process. It's just an escape artist. And um, that means that it leaks inside our homes, even when our gas ovens are turned off, and it leaks into outdoor air. So we, we focus a lot on gas stoves because in the compendium, because um, unlike gas furnaces or gas water heaters, for example, there's no requirement in the building codes to vent the emissions to the outdoor air. So they build up inside of our, our kitchens and create these harms and risks for asthma. Um, but uh, it's important to say, as you point out, that even um, our gas-fired furnaces and, and um, hot water heaters, which do vent to the outside air, uh, th that doesn't mean that emissions go away. That just means that that nitrogen dioxide um, the benzene that is a combustion byproduct from burning natural gas, and then methane itself is leaked into the outside air where it contributes to our overall outdoor air pollution, um, but also contributes not insignificantly to um, greenhouse gases and the, and the climate crisis. So for all those reasons, you know, we know we have technology um, to, to get away from this kind of primitive practice of lighting fossil fuels on fire inside of our own homes. Um, we've got heat pumps. I've got one operating in my house right now. So my house is completely electrified and off of, um, I'm not burning any fossil fuels inside my home. My air quality is better. Um, I save money on, on heat. So we just have these technologies that are better, um, but we need to help incentivize them. We need policies um, to help uh, the transformation happen.
So in the last, um, you know, minute or so, um, you know, what can people do at this point, both to, you know, take action in their own homes, but, you know, support statewide policies? And if people want to see this report, is there a website someplace? Yeah, I mean, science is one part of of social change, right? I think that science needs to inform the way forward, but there's no substitute for creating a social movement um, to compel these changes. The, the gas industry is very uh, powerful politically and is trying to prevent this transformation. So we all need to get involved in the political process uh, in an informed way. So I we have uh, uploaded this compendium, which is a fully referenced um, f f open access peer reviewed monograph um, written in plain English. I did my best not to load it up with a lot of jargon. And it's on our website. You know, with the way I find it, I just Google fracking compendium and it pops right up. But our website is concernedhealthny.org. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Sandra Steingrainberg, uh, Senior Scientist at Science and Environmental Health Network. And this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thanks to Mark for that report. For our earlier coverage on the topic of gas fracking and many other environmental concerns, see our website at mediasanctuary.org. And for more information on the Science and Environmental Health Network, another website to visit is www.sehn.org. And next we turn to the upcoming election for Troy City Council. Elizabeth E.P. Press brings us her interview with Katie Spain McLaren, who is the Democrat running to represent District 3 in the City Council. Today on our election watch coverage, we are talking to Katie Spain McLaren, a teaching assistant in the Troy schools. Katie, thank you so much for joining us today on the Hudson Mohawk magazine. Thank you for having me. Could you just tell us a little bit about yourself? You know, what's your background? How do you spend your time? I am a lifelong resident of Troy. I am a mom to five kids grandmother to two with a third on the way. I am a member of the zoning board currently, finishing up my fourth year now and was on it previously for four years. I am, like you said, a teaching assistant in school too. I've been in the district for about 23 years. Graduated from uh, Boston College with a math degree, thought I was going to be in banking, and my first child came and put the the breaks on all of those plans because I ended up being a stay-at-home mom for about 12 years. So when I started volunteering and being in the school building, I realized that, hey, this is what I want to do. So here I am all these years later. I grew up in Troy, actually in District 3. My childhood home was in District 3. My husband and I bought our first house there, and now we are currently in a different neighborhood, but still in District 3. You mentioned you're on the zoning board. I was wondering if you could discuss a little bit more. What is the zoning board and what do you all work on there? The zoning board basically oversees the zoning code. And Troy just recently passed a new zoning code, which took a long time to rewrite or redo. I was actually on the steering committee that helped rewrite that. The zoning code kind of governs what allowable uses are for the parcels of land throughout the city. People who would like to do something 
outside of that code need to come to the zoning board for a variance. So that's like if I am in like a residential neighborhood and I want to open up a corner store or something like that. Exactly. Is that what you mean? Exactly. It, if it's an allowed use in that neighborhood, you know, uh, residents can find in the code the list of allowed use in certain spots so that hopefully they could make an informed decision before they were to buy a property. If they were to buy it knowing that it needed that variance, then they have self-created their hardship and it would be harder for them to get a variance. Thanks for that. And why did Troy go through this process of rewriting some of the zoning regulations? It was antiquated. Maybe the 80s was the last time it was done, but it was so out of line with Troy's comprehensive plan and just with the need of the city. We were finding a ton of people coming for variances because the things that they wanted to do was against the old code. So it was revamped a little bit. We're seeing fewer people coming for use variances, which is awesome because those are very difficult. We don't go through the process of redoing the code to then all of a sudden change uses because so much thought, you know, a lot of expertise was thought in creating the code the way it is. Area variances are not as difficult to come by if you can show good cause and that it's not going to cause a detriment to your neighbors, the neighborhood, their property value, things like that. The biggest one right now is parking. Basically, our new code does not have a requirement for parking because they found that in cities that parking isn't required so that parking can't be the cause of a project not going through. It used to be so many of the cases that we saw were parking um, so it's cut down drastically on the amount of cases that we have before us. I have a ton more questions on this topic, but we are here to talk about you running for Troy City Council <laughs> District 3. Can you tell us the broad stroke range of what District 3 covers and maybe a little bit about what you're hearing are some of the issues most important to District 3 constituents? Absolutely. So District 3 is pretty large. I don't want to say it's the largest. And we just underwent some lines changing. So a lot of folks that I thought lived in my district don't anymore. But we go from Oakwood Avenue, goes from Humiston Avenue down to Hoosick Street, all the way up to North Lake Avenue. And then it crosses Hoosick and goes up to Burdette, to Tibbetts, and uh, Bountain Road. So it's fairly large. We've got two hospitals two schools, two major parks. So it encompasses a lot. In my walking door to door, I have met so many wonderful people who really love the city, are concerned uh, with a lot of things, more quality of life things like I I'm meeting folks that have lived here for decades and decades. And now all of a sudden they're needing to worry that people are breaking into their cars at night. Or a big thing is people uh, driving through neighborhoods to avoid Hoosick Street traffic um, and the speed on Hoosick Street. A lot of folks would like to see some more um, policing, although Troy has really stepped it up and they have noticed it. They would like to see more of that, whether it's uh, in conjunction with, you know, maybe the county, state troopers, whatever, just to really keep the speed down on Hoosick Street. But when people cut off of Hoosick Street to get, say, to North Lake Ave, and, and they go fast. And we have a lot of, you know, if you don't know the neighborhood and know that there are a lot of animals, a lot of people, a lot of kids, it can be a dangerous situation. Absentee landlords. So in, in District 3, there are a lot of neighborhoods that are 
primarily single family homes with residents who have, you know, like I said, lived there for decades. And there are also in the RPI area, a lot of two family homes that are now being rented out to students. Several of those homes are also people who have been there for decades, rented to a tenant, you know, in their building and seen the buildings around them go on the market and get sold and now being used as housing for RPI. You know, obviously, uh, absentee landlordism is a is a difficult uh, thing in the city. And uh, so the folks on that side of who's extreme uh, particularly are, are feeling that. Now, Katie, when you think about running for Troy City Council, what motivated you to run and why should our audience vote for you if they live in District 3 in this upcoming election in November? Troy is near and dear to me because I've lived here forever and this district is as well. And I've, I've seen the changes myself in how the neighborhoods are made up now. Kind of on a broader scale, I feel like it was time for me to give back. I've been very fortunate. I was approached in the past to run and I wasn't in a position where I could. Uh, my youngest daughter, she's autistic and she has some other needs, which really made it so that I, I wouldn't have been able to give 100% to the job and I wouldn't have wanted to take it any other way. Um, I'm in a much better position now. She's in a much better place right now to where I can spend the time that I need to spend on this. We've been very fortunate as far as our community services nearby hospitals, the, the fire department has been amazing in the struggles that we've had, um, the police department as well. And so in addition to wanting to see those departments fully staffed because of the wonderful work they do, it's time. It's time for me to be committed to doing more than I have volunteering and, and things like that. The attorney general's office has been interested in Troy uh, mm -hmm. at the police fatal crash at 15th and Hoosick and related to Burdett Birth Center and uh, obviously Harbor Point Gardens, but two of those areas are in District 3. Um, I was wondering if you had anything to say about any of that. I am absolutely opposed to that closing. I've been following. I've been to all the hearings. The attorney general was amazing, um, sat there all day, very interested. She really, I feel connected with the people who testified and took great notes, asked great questions, and, you know, kind of gave her support behind um, the people who have started this effort to to keep it open. Of my five kids, three were born at, on the Samaritan campus and two on the St. Mary's campus. So pretty much the same healthcare system. You know, it's invaluable, not just, you know, especially in our district, so many families who are underserved already, it really would cut off access to safe, fast emergency care, all our, um, you know, compassionate care with the uh, the midwives um, and the doulas that work in conjunction with the, uh, the health center. So that is a really huge deal to me. I followed that the story about, you know, the high-speed chase and the tragedy of that. I'm not going to point fingers at anyone. Clearly, there was an error in judgment. I don't want to minimize what happened uh, to the man who passed away. Personally, I don't know that I have all of the information, but from what I've heard, there's already been talk about making some changes in the way that police are responding to calls. I get that lights and sirens tip people off, and sometimes you have to travel without them. And did they need to travel at those high rates of speed? That's not for me to say, but I, you know, I know personally, I wouldn't think so. They were in good faith executing 
what they thought was their job. And so was the delivery driver. And it's, it's, it's tragic. It is tragic. Uh, Katie, we have quickly burnt through our time, but I want to give you the last word here today. What haven't we discussed that we should know about you, Katie? Well, I work hard. I'm accessible on Facebook and Instagram, and my email is listed on both of those sites. I will come and talk to anyone. I will make sure to make myself available, and I will, you know, if elected, I will continue that um, to hold town hall meetings, um, meet with with people in District 3, because it really matters to me. It's my district. Lived there my whole life, and I it matters to me what matters to them. So I, you know, I want folks to know that. Katie Spain McLaren, thank you for joining us today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you. For profiles of candidates for many other positions, see the Election Watch 2023 coverage link on our website. For those just tuning in, I'm Alexis Goldsmith. And I'm Bria Barthel. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network, WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, plus streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by joining our team or just telling a friend. Sharing is caring. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. And for our next segment, Ian Howe from Troy Public Library brings us his October reading suggestions, covering an interesting variety of topics, including... How to Plan for Zombie Apocalypses. Hi, this is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm back once again at Troy Public Library to talk with Ian Houck, Head of Adult Services and Reference Services, about some um, book suggestions that are certainly books I was not aware of, and I suspect they'll be new to listeners, too. Ian, you picked some interesting ones. What do you have for us today? All right. Well, thanks for having me. The first one I have is a uh, nonfiction title, uh, Generations, The Real Difference Between Gen Z, Millennials, Gen X, Boomers, and Silence, and What They Mean for America's Future. The the Gen Z, Millennials, Gen X, Boomers, I've heard of all those. What is silence? The silence, as far as I was able to tell in this book, were the parents of the baby boomers they were the ones that uh were either born or young during the uh depression and then later went on to uh, be in the world war ii era as adults okay so what are the real differences besides age uh the author gene twinge phd as it says on the cover argues that it's less important the historical events that are happening between the generations that really separate us though they do play a part 
And instead, it's more the technology that has really uh, set the divisions between generations, to which I mostly agree. I just have some things that I don't totally agree with, but that's why you read it also to, to get that information. So while the events, uh, we all know, first of all, World War II, that would be a major event that affects you, uh, but it also produced a lot of new technology. From the bad, we ended up getting rocket technology that helped spur on the next generations. And me being in the millennial generation, I have uh, I was still young enough to see the early days of the computer and dial-up internet. So I, I know the difference between the early days of internet uh, and the now wireless internet, where I it's less a phone and we just have tiny computers in our pockets. As a boomer, I remember the first computer I worked on was a giant desk-sized computer that had, I think, 12-inch floppy disks, and to download something took hours. Yes, I I even still remember the first computer my family had. It was uh, a Dell, and yes, it had CD-ROMs, but it was still uh, early days. Okay, and you said you had some things that you disagreed with in the book. Can you give us a, a little hint? I am more on the side right now that the major events really do play a part in the generation. Um, I grew up in a large military area. While my family was not involved in it themselves, it's just around uh, when you live near a base. And when 9-11 happens and you're a kid coming out of school and all of a sudden your friend's parents aren't picking them up, that kind of sticks with you for a little while. And growing up, as I did with the uh, war on terror, um, I, I grew up and matured with those wars. So it's, it would be difficult to say that it had as little effect as the author, as I read it, uh, was suggesting. Okay, and again, that's Generations, the Real Differences Between Gen Z, Millennials, Gen X, Boomers, and Silence, and What They Mean for America's Future. So now we move to a handbook that will be helpful for all of us. What's your next book, Ian? The next book is The Frugal Wizard's Handbook for Surviving Medieval England by Brandon Sanderson. Yes, you heard that right. If you want to go to medieval England, this is the book for you. Um, Yes, so our main character in this book finds themselves in medieval England with very little memory no name at the beginning, no real understanding of how they even got there. Oh, so this is fiction, not nonfiction. Uh, yes. Well, for now, as far as we know. Um, yes. So the character uh, arrive, is in medieval England, wakes up, finds themselves there. And apparently their handbook, their frugal wizard handbook for medieval England, has exploded. And that is the term they use. Their handbook exploded. So they have no idea what the functioning of this world is and what's going on. So you're following this character who is from some sort of future, has the capability of time travel as you learn, but the only help they can get is from the local people of medieval England. And scattered throughout the book, you will actually find uh, little pages and pamphlets from the character's version of the Frugal Wizard's handbook to uh, medieval England. But one of the things I really enjoyed about reading through this book is you'll come across a frequently asked questions p- pages throughout the 
uh, book. And one of my favorites was, why does everyone in Britain speak modern English if my pre-Norman conquest dimension? Shouldn't that require an incredible alignment of social and linguistic factors that would never in a million years align in such a convenient way? And the answer from the handbook is, apparently not. (laughs) So the question is longer than the answer. I like that. Okay, so that, again, is the Frugal Wizard's Handbook for Surviving Medieval England. Enjoy your travel, listeners. And next we have... Next, uh, we're going back to nonfiction. It is titled Extreme North, A Cultural History by Bernd Brunner. It is a uh, historical and sociological study of the Northern European peoples and their histories, now, of course, when you say Scandinavia and Finland and the lower Arctic, immediately a lot of ideas of horned helmets sailing out of the north come to mind. And that's not entirely wrong, minus the horns. I do apologize to everyone who was hoping for horned helmets. They were not that common if they did come at all. Opera companies will have to redo all their costumes if that's the case. And actually, that's something the author does talk about is the influence of the Scandinavian cultures on Wagner and Tolkien and other uh, parts. And one of the uh, interesting parts of this book for me, because I do have some Northern European heritage, is um, just the way that a lot of the history was taken out of context, uh, both good and bad. We know Wagner's, you know, dun da 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 the musicals, the big things, that's where the horns come from. But then also negatively, we do know that uh, a lot of the ideas of um, the Aryan races came from the visions of the North, Northern Europeans. So this book and this, uh, the, what they're writing about is trying to like sort through all that to get back to the real history. These were the Northern Europeans, the Scandinavians, the Finns, the lower Arctic people, they had families, they had social structures, legal systems that were all their own and uh, may not just be as fun as the fictional versions we came up with. And again, that's Extreme North, A Cultural History by Berned, B-E-R-N-D, Bruner, B-R-U-N-N-E-R. And we just have a minute and a half for your final book, sorry. Uh, so I have a manga with me. This is Zom 100, Bucket List of the Dead by Kotaro T- Takata. Yeah, Our main character, Akira, works at a really bad exploitative company, and he is very violently and suddenly faced one day with a zombie apocalypse. Now, there's a lot of feelings you could have with a zombie apocalypse, uh, fear, depression, a lot of those things. Akira is pumped that the zombie apocalypse is happening because then he doesn't have to go to work that day. And he decides during the zombie apocalypse, he's going to figure out a hundred things he wants to do before he either dies or turns into a zombie. It's good to plan ahead. And tell us a little bit about the images in the book. So it does come up very cartoony even with a zombie apocalypse going on um it does rely heavily on the uh the grays and the blacks um because it is uh in black and white as most manga is but the joyful expression you'll see sometimes on akira's face really in the middle of all this chaos you will get a laugh out of this book okay and again that is zom z-o-m 100 
by Haro Aso, art by Kotaro Takata. And it's the Zam 100 Bucket List of the Dead. So if you want to be prepared for understanding your family, traveling to medieval England, understanding the extreme north, or surviving or enjoying an, a zombie apocalypse, you have Ian Hauk at Troy Public Library to thank for those leads. Thanks a lot, Ian. Thank you. And for more information, you can go to the troylibrary.org or stop by at 100 Second Street in downtown Troy. That's it. Bria Barthel signing off. For a full list of all those titles and authors, see the segment description on our website and tune in to episodes later this week to hear book suggestions from Lori Dreyer and Carol Roberts, Bria's other monthly Troy Library interviewees. And one quick correction. My first computer experience was actually with key punch cards. Yes, I am just that old. Now joining us once again, a bit earlier than usual, is retired National Weather Service meteorologist Hugh Johnson for our weekly discussion of weather and climate. Welcome back, Hugh. Hey, how's it going, Bria? I, too, remember key punch uh, computer cards, and I wasn't a big fan of them at all. So, yes, I, I reveal my age, too. <laughs> So it's, we're glad to have you on tonight. And wow, yesterday it felt so much like November. But what I hear is that we have not yet had a frost in the immediate capital region. Isn't that unusual, given that we're now at October 23rd? Uh, it's very unusual, Bree. In fact, it's so unusual. What's even more unusual is that we have not gone officially below 40, which is now the latest that's happened in any fall season. The latest was October 23rd of 1903, so uh, over 120 years ago, and uh, tonight we should do it. Tonight we should easily get below 40 and probably get a frost. I don't know if we're going to get a hard freeze, We're not, gonna, and that's when you really officially end the, the growing season. I don't think we're going to get quite that low, but we'll definitely get down to 30 tonight. I'd be very surprised if we don't. Everything's setting up for a cold night tonight. Hey, Hugh, it's Alexis here. So is there anything? Hey, how you doing? Oh, good. Uh, is there anything else going on of weather interest that our listeners should know about? Well, it's nothing horrible. There's no big storms out there or firestorms. But in the Amazon, the port of Manius in Brazil had uh, yesterday, the day before, their lowest recording in 121 years, uh, 13.59 feet. Now, this is on the Amazon which is the largest river by volume in the world. The largest length is the Nile. But this is bad news. This has caused crippling uh, economy in this area because boats have been grounded. Uh, it's been one of the driest, uh, one of the worst droughts they've had in the summer, and it's being blamed on El Nino because we've had, when you get an El Nino, that part of the, of the uh, world gets very dry. There's a lot of sinking air, and, and it suppresses a lot of the convective activity. So not a good thing at all that this is happening in Brazil. And speaking of El Nino, last week we had to cut you short when you were talking about it, and you mentioned a couple other weather factors and how they can have just as much, if not more, of an impact on our weather than just El Nino alone. So can you tell us a little bit more about those? Absolutely. Again, just to recap, El Nino is the warming of the, of the uh, equatorial Pacific waters of, of straight but very warm water. It's happening. It's, it's a done deal. Uh, the question is how strong it will be. But when you act, people say that that gives you a general winter pattern, which it does. 
But if you got to look at some other indices like the North um, Atlantic Oscillation, which is a pattern that sets up when you have high pressure over Greenland and low pressure in the Canaries, you're in the negative phase and you're blocking atmosphere and you're pushing cold air down towards us and keeping the storm track pretty active along the eastern seaboard, generally speaking. When it's the opposite, negative, uh, positive in AO, you have low pressure near uh, Iceland and you have high pr- pressure further south. And then you have a more progressive pattern and you keep the cold air north. That's huge because that can uh, interact with the El Nino to make all kinds of different types of El Ninos. For instance, in 2002-03, we had a moderate El Nino, and you probably don't remember this, but it was uh, one hell of a winter, excuse my French, 105 inches of snow, only one of the three times we had over 100 inches of snow, and we were buried the whole winter. It was brutally, it was quite cold, too. But then you get the El Nino of 15-16, we had hardly any snow, but the stronger El Nino, but that was very unusual, because usually during the strong El Nino, we get a couple of big snowstorms. That year, we really didn't, and it has to do with the in that particular year, in the more in the latter one, we were in a positive NAO phase almost the entire winter, whereas in the previous winter I mentioned, 2002-3, we were in a negative NAO for the entire winter. We also look at other indices like the um, Pacific North American pattern and, and others. And, and basically what these indices do is they keep a trough in the east. If, it, if it's, they work together and they phase right, it keeps a trough in the east. It keeps us cold. And, and potentially snowy, or we get stuck, we get into a ridge, or we get zonal, in which case we're not nearly as cold, and we're less likely to get storms. We still can. It's not that we won't get them, but it's just not as likely. So a lot of variations on the El Nino, and that's what people got to understand. It's still, you, you see stuff on the internet, oh, it's going to be this kind of winter and that, but it's still a lot, of, we still have to see what's going to happen with how much snow cover covers the uh, uh, up in the Canada area, the progression of the snowpack, it's still not taking off. It's still a little bit below normal. Uh, but we are going to see changes down the road. I think we are going to eventually get into some genuinely cold weather, but not until we get into some nicer weather first. So with all of those different factors, now I'm getting a better sense of why weather forecasts are so difficult and often vary so much. Yeah, and then, Bree, you got to throw in another factor. You can have a negative NEO and, and El Nino, but it all comes down to where the storm track sets up because in the winter of 2009-10, not that that winter was an El Nino, but the storm track stayed south of us. We, we did get some snow that winter, but we were well below average. That's the year that the middle line got crushed with three epic snowstorms, and we missed two or th- out of three of them, one we got part of. So we really lucked out in that winter, although we got one later on on our own, but still we never caught up to what they were. But yeah, just, it's just a very, very um, tricky thing, the timing and everything. It's all about timing and, and all these uh, teleconnections coming together. So, Hugh, what do you see uh, for us in our weather for this upcoming week? It's a great week, Alexis. We actually have um, we're going to be cold tonight, like we said. Tomorrow it's sunny, back up, up around 60 a nice gentle breeze, and then we're going to warm it from there. We're going to see temperatures closer to 70 Wednesday, Thursday, and probably Friday as well. We might even get into the low 70s, and that may even continue to the weekend. We have to watch a front that might backdoor on us on Saturday and give us a shower and cool us off. But all in all, it looks like a great week coming up until the beginning of the weekend. And then after that, it looks like we will start seeing some more seasonably cold weather returning. Are we going to see more of this wind and rain that we've had the last few days? 
not certainly this week, but that next chance of that won't be till right now on paper anyway. It looks like around Halloween. So we'll keep you on that's still a week away. But uh, we don't see any big storms between now and the weekend. That's correct. Any early forecasts for trick-or-treaters? Just stay tuned because uh, the problem in that day is there's going to be a storm developing. It's either we, we could be on the warm side of it or we could be on the cold side. Well, the cold side, I'm not going to scare anyone, but <laughs> it is Halloween after all. But there, there could be some of that four-letter word <laughs> in there. And by the way, yeah, Halloween, we've only had, I think, less than an inch of snow is our record for Halloween. We've, we've been spared any big Halloween storms per se. That could change sometime. In the, but, you know, it's still a week out. A lot of things can change. But uh, just keep an eye out. But, you know, DC at least looks like the chance of some precipitation that night for sure. And um, temperature is still, you know, depending on where that front ends up, could be uh, mild or not so mild. <laughs> So when you say the four-letter word, you, you're not talking about the S words, no, are you? Yeah, well, especially north of, of Albany. On, um, sometime around Halloween, November 1st, there could be some snow into working into the equation. That is correct. I mean, it's still early, and chances are we won't get accumulating snow here, but it's something to keep an eye on. Well, that just seems like a scary trick. Yeah, but but enjoy the next few days because they will be gorgeous and there should be a lot of sunshine and uh, and that kind of thing. It'll be, and it'll be you know good for the vitamin getting some vitamin D because it's now getting hard. To get, it's almost impossible to get now. Just barely get it for a couple hours. <laughs> okay, well, thanks, Hugh, as always, for joining us once again, and we look My forward pleasure. to talking with you next week. You all have a good uh, night then. Bye, you. Thank you. Bye, bye. You got it. So wrapping up today's show, groups and individuals have taken to the streets to call for peace as violence rages in Gaza, the West Bank, and Israel. Gaetano Vaccaro and Taina Asili were at last week's demonstration at the Federal Building in Albany to call for a ceasefire in Gaza. Naomi Jaffe, a local Jewish anti-racist activist who is a community organizer, and part of the group Jewish Voices for Peace, was also at that rally. Gaetano recorded this statement from Naomi and sent it to Hudson Mohawk magazine. As a Jew, as a Jew who had family who were killed in the Holocaust in Europe in the 1930s and 40s, as a Jew who has family who have lost loved ones today in Israel, not in my name. Not in my name, no more genocide, no more genocide to anybody. We have to stand up in the way that the world didn't stand up for us in the 1930s and 40s. This is our moment. This is our moment to, this is our moment to recognize the humanity of the people, of all people, and to fight for the humanity of all people. It didn't start. It didn't start a few weeks ago. It started 75 years ago with the occupation, occupation promoted by the imperialist powers who gave away a piece of land that didn't belong to them to give away and made it possible, not only made it possible, were the only, were the only way that it could have been possible for that occupation to continue for 75 years. That's why my sign says stop U.S. complicity. Because without U.S. complicity, this genocide couldn't happen. The 75 years of occupation couldn't have happened. A friend of mine said that what's going on 
indicates that Israel is a fascist country, full stop. If Israel is a fascist country, which it is, the country that supports it and facilitates it and is in partnership with it, what do we call that? At the same rally, Taina Asili joined Naomi Jaffe in reading aloud excerpts from a written statement by journalist Tariq Hajaj, a Mandawais Gaza correspondent and a member of the Palestinian Writers' Union. Every time I receive the news, it, it hits me hard like it's the first time. Every time I move, I feel like I'm taking my last step. I keep praying, asking God for protection not only for my own sake, but for my nine-month-old sons, so that he won't grow up without a father. I will accept my own suffering, but I can't bear to see him suffer. When I prepare myself to leave my home and put on my press vest to my family, it looks like I'm a moving target. My family tries to prevent me from leaving. My wife brings my son to me. I know what she's doing. She wants me to rethink my decision and stay home with them. But I say goodbye and leave before breaking down and crying in front of them. They need me to be strong. For all of us, this is not the normal farewell we share with each other before I leave. It may be the last goodbye and the last time I hug them. But this isn't the only challenge I have to face throughout my work as a journalist in Gaza these days. Death follows me like a shadow, and the difficulty is in keeping myself together in front of all the heartbreaking scenes I see every day, and keeping my eyes dry as I listen to the stories of the survivors. But even those who weren't killed didn't truly survive. How on earth could they, when their entire family was killed or remained stuck under the rubble? In Gaza right now, no one can guarantee their safety by staying home, while those who go to the field to carry out their duties hold their life in their own hands and move forward. And for people like me, it doesn't matter anymore if we are killed. We are chosen to be messengers for our people's suffering. But what motivates me is knowing that my voice is heard and that the massive support from my team, even when I can't write and can only speak over the phone, my colleagues in Mondois turn my thoughts into stories. They are the reason that my voice is heard. Today, I'm telling you the news. Tomorrow, I may be the news. I'm not sure that I will be able to write another story in the upcoming days. I'm not sure that I will survive. Israel decided, along with the US and European countries, to wipe out the entire Gaza Strip. They plan on turning us into refugees one more time, and now they're putting pressure on Egypt to host us. But the majority of the people in Gaza have decided to stay in their homes, even if it means being exterminated. My message to everyone who reads these lines is to remember that the most powerful countries in the world are killing civilians in Gaza. Do not believe them when they speak about human rights and humanity. They have no humanity. We begged them over the past 17 years to break our siege. They never listened. That they are rushing to kill us. Keep my stories alive so that you keep me alive. Remember that I wanted a normal life, a small home full of my children's laughter and the smell of my wife's cooking. 
Remember that the world that pretended to be the savior of humanity participated in killing such a small dream. Remember me as I prepare myself to leave this world by force and go to a better one, one where the U.S. and Israel do not exist. Tariq S. Hajjaj, October 15, 2023. And that was part of a statement from journalist Tarek Eshajaj, read by Taina Asili and Naomi Jaffe. You can read the full statement by searching for This Could Be My Last Report from Gaza at mondaweiss.net. That's M-O-N-D-O-W-E-I-S-S dot net. We'll end today's coverage from the rally calling for a ceasefire in Gaza with this recording from Taina Asili on vocals and Gaetano Vaccaro on guitar with recording support from Branda Miller. I wrote this song, I think it was in 2009, in my family's homeland in Puerto Rico after a massacre in Palestine. And it breaks my heart that this song is still relevant today. It's called Strong Tree. On the other side of the earth As quiet stars fall into my night Daylight opens to tragedy in a Behind the apartheid wall, a mother throws her child to sleep in the midst of Children.
the face, in the face of hate. Wow. And you just heard a recording of Taina Seeley on vocals with Gaetano Vaccaro on guitar with recording support from Branda Miller. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Alexis Goldsmith. My co-host was Bria Barthel. And our engineer is the ever-amazing Sina Basila Hickey. We want to thank all of the volunteers who made this episode possible. Contributors to today's episode are myself, co-hosting with Bria, and partial uh, headlines and segment production. Thanks to Mark Dunley for headlines and segment production, Elizabeth E.P. Press for continued election watch coverage, and Hugh Johnson for continued weather and climate reporting, plus Taina Asili and Gaetano Vaccaro for their report from the Peace Rally and for their music. And thanks to you, our listeners, for making this all worthwhile. Until next time.